Brownsville Game Design, Game 2017, RPG Maker, with Joe Miller, Dylan Wolf, Levi D. Smith, and Jake Gillenwater. Hello everyone, welcome to the June 2017 meeting of the Knoxville Game Design. We are a group of developers in the Knoxville area and East Tennessee area, and most of us just develop games in our spare time, but some of us actually have games on major platforms. Uh, looks like we have four people on the call, uh, including myself. Uh, first of all, from Lenore City, he's the developer of games such as Shifty Shapes and One Card Hero, uh, Dylan Wolf. Hello. Next, we have from Morristown, Tennessee, uh, he's developed games such as Subhunter and Kufu's Delivery Service, Joe Miller. Howdy. And we have a new uh, member of our group this time, uh, Jake. Uh, do you want to say something, Jake? Uh, I'm from Kingsport. Oh, well, welcome to our group. <laughs> so, uh, this week we're going to start out talking about a, a little bit of show and tell, the things that we've developed, uh, go over some, uh, some news in the game industry, some things that are going on, some of the conventions that we've been to. And then this month we're going to have Dylan Wolf give us a presentation on RPG Maker. So uh, I'll start with Joe this time. Joe, did you have anything you wanted to show off this month? Uh, I didn't really have anything new made. It was kind of a busy there with the Mocon at the end. So a lot of time was getting ready for that and going down to Atlanta and doing the show there. Good. Oh, okay. Uh, uh, we'll talk about Momocon in a second. You know. And then, uh, yeah, I was just kind of getting back from that. I got started with uh, a mailing list. So I used MailChimp for the first time. Which I don't know if people are familiar with. It's pretty handy. You can do uh, quite a lot with it. I think it's up to like 2,000 emails a month for free before you have to pay, uh, which with my mailing list would is fine. Like I could email twice a week with no problem. Um, and then uh, trying to get more involved on more social media stuff. So I, I submitted couple of my games on IndieDB and got set up on there and MobileDB or ModDB. Excellent. Yeah, whichever the one for... They're all kind of uh, networked together. But yeah, IndieDB is a great place to go to if you want to uh, show off your games and uh, things like that. I have a few of my games up there. I mean, I think you can actually submit your games up there as well, but it's just a great place to go if you just want some additional publicity for your games. Yeah, and then I, I launched my Patreon, which is drawing in, I think, $6 a month now, awesome. which is big money, yeah, <laughs> trying to see how that goes, and trying to get in the habit of, like, whenever I do write something for social media, that I at least get it out everywhere, because there's so many websites now to try to keep track of, with like, the Facebook and the Instagram, and now a Patreon post, or trying to put out a newsletter, or NDDB, or, like, put out articles on Gamma Sutra, or... In 4G, like it's, it's so many places. I don't, I just kind of shotgun approach whenever I write anything and, and see 
which ones feed back better. Yeah, with Patreon, it's just important to get off zero and uh, donations and then like just keep posting stuff up there. I know like I have a Patreon as well, and uh, it is that extra step of having to go out and like, post it there. And if you write an article, post it on Gumstrutra and all those other places. So, yeah, I agree with you. I mean, just post as much stuff as you can every single place and just get your name out there and awareness and like we've said before, I mean, the actual programming of game development is only like half, if that much, of... Uh, yeah, that's the, the to-do list. Like, it always comes back to, like, all the actual things I need to do. I'm working on Subhunter right now, uh 2.0 update. And it's like, I'll get, like, one thing done off of that, and then nine things done off of just the general upkeep, social media upkeep. Which, uh, that does remind me, though, I did have Khufu's delivery service got greenlit yes. just, like, two days ago. I saw that. Awesome. Right right, right <laughs> as they're closing the service, because I noticed they finally completely shut uh, Greenlight down. So I'm glad they went through there and, like, greenlit as many as they could before they shut it down. Yeah, I don't know what the cutoff was. I was seeing a lot of other indies out there getting that were also announcing titles being greenlit, so... I think there's a pretty big batch there at the end. I'm thinking they just went through there. I mean, for everybody that donated the $100 to get on Greenlight, I think they just went through there. It's like everybody that had something that looked like a real game or something that looked decent just went ahead and greenlit them because we can't get votes or anything anymore. Yeah. So. Well, there's still like on the community page, there's still about 7,000 titles that didn't get greenlit oh, wow. that were left just that's, yeah, didn't make the cut. So I'm wondering if it's just like everyone that had at least. 50 yes votes or something or something like that yeah i did have a good bit of traffic on my green light um coming off of momocon i assume just because i was telling people there that i had it up there yeah oh that's uh, really cool that's, so maybe it means having the booth and everything was worth it well i didn't get any yes votes that was kind of the weird thing like the page view you could see the unique visitors yeah. and i had like 600 visitors between may 25th and may 30th but no new votes Hmm. Uh, I attribute that mostly because people are looking at it from their browser where they're not signed in. Yeah. So you follow a link to the browser on the Greenlight page, but it's not worth the extra step of actually opening Steam and going back and then giving it a vote. But maybe that, I, I don't know, the Greenlight's algorithm, so page views might count anyway, just as long as people were looking. Yeah. I must wonder if, like you said, you saw a bunch of people voting or coming in but not voting. I wonder if it's the sort of thing where it's like, nah, you know, if I'm hearing about it, if he's got a booth, you know, someone's voting for him. I don't have to. <laughs> yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, it still uh, was was pretty far down there. I, I had kind of given up on it, but I'm I'm happy it made it through. So then I started looking at all the Steam SDK stuff. Steamworks. I got to figure out how to implement that real quick before going much further yeah uh they do have and i don't know how much we're supposed to say about this but they do have like a package that you download and it's like command line tools and you got to edit some configuration files and point it to your build and then it automatically yeah, been, gets sucked into steam and everything so yeah it's kind of it's it's exciting though i didn't really think i was gonna make it through so i was starting to think about which games i would fork out a hundred bucks for down the road for steam direct but yeah because on, at least i got 
on the old, one to practice with. The old system, it was like uh, you give a hundred dollars. It's supposed to go to charity and everything, and then you could submit as many games as you wanted. But under the new system, it's like a hundred dollars per game. So on, uh, on the old green light. Uh, I think I had nine games that I submitted. I, I took advantage, <laughs> and my one gunman I think had like two hundred and forty or two hundred and fifty yes votes. So that was like significantly less than I know a lot of games. Seems like the bar used to be like a thousand yes votes, but they never did have any like set requirements for getting greenlit. It's always like up to Steam and if they deemed you worthy and everything. But uh, yeah, that's very cool. Oh yeah, that's, that's about it. Okay, trying to get back into development, so I'll be uh, streaming more and doing some more stuff on Facebook and Twitter. Just trying to settle back into a development cycle for a couple months. Yeah, I was also going to mention that uh, I set up an Oxville Game Design Twitter account. So if anybody, I think all you guys have. Uh, subscribe to it if anybody else out there listening or watching wants to keep up just with our group you can go there and get all of the updates on uh, what we've been developing I, I wanted to do it separate from my personal account because I, I tweet about everything so if anybody out there just wants to hear about the game dev stuff yeah check that out uh, Dylan did you have anything aside from RPG Maker that you wanted to show off this month Nah, I haven't really been doing... I've been poking around in Unity, but not not much really to show. Oh, okay. That's fine. Hey, Jake, uh, did you want to tell us about yourself, uh, a little bit about yourself? Uh, have, are you an experienced game developer? Uh, what are your favorite tools? Things like that. Uh, I'm King Sports. I'm an ETSU student right now, a senior. Mm-hmm. Uh, of- I think I first published my first game on Newgrounds and Flash in maybe 2013-ish. Oh, okay. What was so the name that, of that game? Uh, I think it was called Contrast. It was pretty awful. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> uh, I think since then, there's been another Flash game called Contrast that was way better. Uh, it was actually really good. Mine, mine was awful. It was a little vertical shooter, had triangles. It was bad. Hey, we all started out uh, somewhere. So, <laughs> so uh, after that, so doing some stuff in Game Maker, did that for a while. Then I got into school, so I learned more about programming and then made the switch over to Unity and Unreal. Uh, did more stuff in Unity. Right now, I'm doing stuff in Phaser and TypeScript. Awesome. <laughs> Yeah, we have uh, quite a bit of a uh, few game maker developers. John know Joe's worked a lot with Game Maker, and I ha- have as well. And uh, Dylan uh, does a lot in Unity. Uh, I do a little bit of everything Unity and uh, Game Maker and things like that. I was going to ask you: Are there a lot of game uh, developers? Is there any like game groups in uh, King Sport around the ETSU area? No, this place is barren. <laughs> yeah. Uh, all, all the kids I go to school with, no interest in game design. Oh, uh, that's unfortunate. <laughs> they do. It's that's how Morristown's in way. You know, big SQL databases and network management and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Joe Miller here, he's from Morristown. I think he might be getting closer to us soon, but uh, yeah, we're all kind of spread out here. Uh, 
this we used to meet in person every month and we'd have like five or six people show up but it got to the point is like we're so separated in east tennessee that it's easier just to get online and <laughs> meet this way but uh yeah thanks for jo- joining us jake Okay, so uh, this month we got together, many of us went down to uh, Momocon in Atlanta, Georgia, which Joe mentioned uh, just a few minutes ago. Uh, it was a gaming convention. There was there were about 30,000 people there. Uh, there was anime, game, tournament competitions. They had a, they really expanded in their uh, indie game presence at Momocon on the convention floor. I remember it used to be like at, off on the side in the back and they had like the indie games right there in front. It looked like there were about, I don't know, 20 boosts or so uh, for the indie game uh, uh, area on the convention floor. So Joe Miller representing Double Square LLC. He had a booth, really awesome booth uh, where you could go up. You can see videos of his games. You can he had his games where you could play them on your tablet on his tablet, and also he had like a little pinball game where you could pick balls and win prizes and things like that. So I thought it was really well done. Yeah, it was. Uh, it it was supposed to draw people over, which I think it did. I I had bought on Amazon like a bundle of japanese candy and american candy and i was using that as prizes just for people to come over it wasn't too expensive uh but it was it was nice did you have pictures that's what i was going to bring up earlier and i forgot to look for it um i think i had some on the facebook yeah um i actually did a video from the convention floor i don't know if i want to bring that up right now but uh i do admit i wasn't prepared uh with these images joe miller and that was my first year at momocon i had not been to that before so i don't uh know how it was compared to last year but a lot of the other developers in the area in the booth area there mm-hmm. so they they liked the placement of where we were at with the indie games yeah because um, it was kind of like everybody that was going over to the arcades and the uh, laser tag and stuff that was in the far side of the room there mm-hmm. had to walk through our area to get there. Exactly. So you're getting all that fit traffic through there. <laughs> yeah. I think one of the things they did better this year was um, the area that analog gaming and arcades and indie gaming was in was switched with the main stage on the far side. So you had to go through, like you had to walk past the indie gaming area. You had to walk past the arcades and stuff like that to get to the main stage. So, um, it was just right there when you came off the escalator. Yeah. And that was, it was, uh, a skill. I guess I need to work on more. I was doing the, the cold open. Cause you had a, a lot of people, like you said, that were walking through to the, uh, the main stage area or wherever they were going over there. And they'd look within like people won't naturally stop and like, look at your stuff unless you are kind of being out there and trying to jump into conversations with people, which is 
not always uh, easy to do. It, <laughs> it can be hard. I mean, trying to be a car salesman and everything. And some of those people are just there for the cosplay or they're just there to go to the tournament. So, I mean, you're not going to get everybody. But, I mean, yeah, if you can pull somebody off and say, hey, check out my stuff. I mean, that's one more person uh, that could be aware of your projects. Uh, yeah, yeah I know. I'd, I had made a follow-up post with with my budget that I had spent to do the show there. Yeah, I was going to um, show that off here in a minute. Okay. Um, uh, on a revenue side, I, I definitely didn't make that money back. I had about three, 400 downloads that weekend, and my ad revenue was probably maybe up around 60 to 80 bucks just from the weekend. Yeah. And then I'm, I've kind of been riding it out. Like, I've made about another 100 um, where it's been up around 10 12 dollars a day since then mm -hmm. but it's kind of gone back to normal since then so yeah uh, i probably made back maybe 150 dollars total out of what i spent which is not that great as far as a return on investments if you're trying to make like break even with the booth expenses but i kind of just for what i got with like meeting people and handing out buttons and stuff like uh, as as advertising and and being out there, I kind of feel like I still got my value. Yeah, it's all about networking and everything, and yeah, you got to make that initial investment and everything. Um, I'm showing off some of the pictures from your booth right here, so you can see uh, the little bins. You would pick out a uh, one of the ping pong balls. Well, I liked how you had two different ways that you use the little bucket of ping pongs. Like you could pick out one of the balls then you would get a prize, but you can also try to guess how many balls were in the bucket. Then you got like, I think you're giving away like a gift certificate or something like that. Yeah, Joe. So we got a picture of your booth here with all the giveaways and your two tablets where people can play your games and the, the video uh, of your games playing there. Yep. Yeah, the TV was just on like a, it's probably about a 10 minute turnaround. I, it's like a mix of a PowerPoint and a video. So it just goes and plays slides and plays a video every so often. Yeah, it's good to have something where you can set it on loop so it just keeps playing. You don't have to worry about kicking it off every few minutes or anything. I think I used uh, VLC or something one time when I was doing uh, the thing that we did at Open Streets or one of those things, uh, uh, what was it, Emory Place Block Party, and just set that on. It has a really neat, nifty feature where you can select this portion of your video and just put it on loop. I see you also have your yeah. giveaways right there. Yeah, I'd think in, in the future with another show, I'd like to come up with a way to raise the TV or some, buy something off Amazon, some kind of TV mount thing so it's up above like at eye level mm -hmm. uh, instead of sitting on the table. So there was a couple other booths that had stuff like that. And it was good for getting people to look at it from further away. Yeah. And then when people are walking by, they're not blocking the screens either. Yeah. I liked how you had uh, the QR code, which I finally learned how to use QR codes <laughs> on your little giveaways, but yeah, you can just like fire up Twitter and, uh, I think there's the thing that says, oh, capture QR code, then it just opens it up in your browser. So I think that's a nice touch. This looks like this was set up for the indie game area. Or no. Uh, that, was, think... that was the main vendor area oh, okay. over there. Yeah, that brawl hall. I think that was off on the main area. This looks like this is the entrance. 
oh, and here's your ping pong ball. <laughs> yeah, so the, the jug was filled with ping pong balls, which it was uh, 307, by the way, if you had made a guess. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, was... I really liked how you had the notepad there where you could get people's email addresses or contact information. I'm assuming that's what you used to start up your MailChimp list, and then they could write their guess of how many balls was in the, the container there. Yeah, and then I gave away a gift card after for who the person that was closest. Yeah, that, that's a pretty unique idea. I, I like that. I had about 200 signups on the, the email list, but uh, by the time I got it typed in, it was down to like 134 uh, just because a lot of people left off their domain. Uh, like they just wrote their name, but not the at Yahoo or at Gmail or whatever. Mm-hmm. Some of those I guessed, but some of those bounced back too. And then other people just handwriting was, I don't know. <laughs> just too hard <laughs> to read. Yeah. I had uh, got about 30 bounce backs on the emails when I sent it out. So, yeah, I guess that's going to happen. I mean, just with trying to decipher people's handwriting and things like that. I thought about having people type it in, but then I would have needed like another tablet and another power source over there. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, that's always a hard thing, like even when we're meeting and everything and trying to get uh, Twitter handles from people uh, to add them to the Knoxville game industry Twitter list. Um, it's like, oh, how do you spell this? How do you spell that? And I'm like, oh, here's my phone. Just type it in. <laughs> but then you got to give somebody your phone to type it in. So, uh, yeah, that's awesome, Joe. Uh, I know Dylan, you did one talk on uh, game developing games for fun, not for profit, right? Yeah, it was kind of an intro to essentially what we do, or I think what most of us have done here, which is kind of hobbyist game development first, and then you know see where that goes. Um, it was one of those. I, I the main point of the talk is is usually just giving. Um, an overview of a bunch of different game engines and, you know, the basics you might need to understand them. Um, it was one of those that it's been a while since I've done the talk and I flubbed some things and missed some things, but um, it's always kind of interesting at MomoCon because there are people who like, there seem to be a lot of actually industry people there. Yeah. And so you're like, I don't know what people are looking for and i don't know if you know there are people in the audience who know more than me and i look like an idiot and I look like i'm telling you know these people information so yeah. um, you always get that mix of people you might have professionals you might have beginners i know i went to one session it was a session after the podcasting session and it was just like so basic it was like the talk that we gave at Code Stop. Oh, yeah. And I was like, no, I, I, I sat in there for 10 minutes. And I was like, no, I can't take this. It was, was that Indie Game Dev Startup? Yes, that's what it was. That was the one I didn't go to because I was going to like a voice actor panel. Uh, yeah. What like? So that was just the basics of an indie game. Yeah, how to get started, how to write your first game. Then it, it was basically like 10 minutes of that. Then it turned into a QA session of people most who haven't ever developed a game before uh, asking questions. So I was like, okay, no, I, I don't need to sit through this. I mean, it was fine for that audience, just not for me. Yeah, it, It's one of those things I went to, like, that's what mine was aimed at. There's another guy, uh, John Sensei Games, uh, who 
and came to one of my talks apparently earlier. Now he's given his own sort of intro talk. Cause you know, he came in from the perspective of wanting to do like Japanese translations and stuff like that. Yeah, he did the Hiragana learner. I think he had a booth. Yeah, Hiragana breaker. Yeah. Yeah. I saw his yeah. booth on the convention floor. And it's, it's interesting because yeah, like for, for someone who's been doing it for a while, like if, you know, like you going to one of those panels is going to be like, you know what they're talking about. And in fact, you, you would probably do it a different way, yeah, but it basically sounded like they were giving our code stop talk that we did. <laughs> a couple oh, like the, the game jam, like here's what our actual experiences were. Yeah, That's basically what it was. But I think, I think what's interesting is you see people coming at it from different angles. Like you've got the people who are doing the real experiential sort of like, here's what we ran into. I'm coming at it from, here's the stuff that's going to be intimidating. Let me kind of get your feet wet. Like, uh, John's, uh, John sensei, uh, does the, um, talk from kind of the perspective of here is how I went from no, no game design knowledge at all to actually putting out a game and, and what that looked like. And, um, I think all those are, you know, Useful perspectives for someone starting. Yeah, definitely. Because, I mean, just starting out from nothing, it can be, like, intimidating. So just a point in the right direction. And I know, like, the Knoxville Game Design Group has always been beneficial for, to help me get started, especially when we had, like, the Chaos Soft guys coming in. It's like, oh, this is how we did our business and our finances and things like that, how we got started and everything. So, yeah, it's definitely great for a starting point there. Uh, so yeah, Dylan and I, uh, we attended a podcasting session uh, at Momocon. I thought that was good. Gave me some ideas on things to make better with the podcast and how to improve things. Uh, I thought that was a good talk. Uh, Joe and I actually talked with uh, someone on the convention floor in the indie booth area uh, from the Atlanta Indie Game Group. Uh, and seems like they have a pretty decent indie game scene there in Atlanta. Uh, I think his name was Ron, Ron Jones. Uh, I don't know if I can show that. Yeah, Ron Jones. And then, uh, the guy in the booth next to mine that was showing, um, the depths of extinction game, he's part of the Atlanta group too. And he was telling me about it, that they, they have their regular monthly meetups. And then they also have more specialized, like unity only meetups. It, it definitely sounds like I said, it sounds like there's a lot more uh, people who do this in that area. A lot more people who are doing this professionally. I had one, uh, a guy in my talk that mentioned the uh, Georgia game developer association. You know, it definitely seems like these are people, these are groups that are big enough that they can have the little special interest group breakouts yeah, I know there's like yeah. an overall IGDA group, and I think they may have like a local Georgia chapter of that. But uh, yeah, it was really good talking to Ron Jones. Uh, he represented the indie cluster. The one thing that I was interested in, he said that they actually do global game jam there. That's something I've always wanted to participate in, but it's like in January, which is a horrible time to get out of the house and drive a couple hundred miles. But uh, yeah, yeah, so check out Indie Cluster. Yeah, he did mention they're doing a thing um, in October, I think. That's the the siege event, which is like the what they called the Southern GDC. Oh, okay. Which is it stands for like South 
interactive gaming expo or something s-i-e-g-e siege Mm -hmm. but it's in atlanta in october and it's like 60 or 80 bucks for a a pass for that i'll probably once we get a little bit closer to that be looking into going now i wonder if they're going to have booths or is that just for a ticket to get in just for a ticket to get in yeah it's uh held i think either by the the Georgia Game Developers Association or the indie cluster that he was part of, something there. But it's supposed that's supposed to be a lot more panels, um, specifically focused on game development and game development topics. Yeah, I'd definitely be interested in attending that as well. Uh, yeah, it was called Siege. Siege. Yeah, I know there were so many different like conventions being advertised. So I got a couple of the uh, flyers here. There, there's this one, the Southern Fried Gaming Expo here, and th- it's actually going on right now. So unless people are listening live, <laughs> this one's probably uh, wrapping up today. But uh, a lot of these, I'm not sure if they're for gamers or game developers or both. There's also DreamHack, which is going to be in Atlanta in July. That may be backwards, but uh, that's another one, which I'm not sure if there's developers there, but it sounds like they have a little bit for everybody there. Okay, Uh, and I'll also mention uh, E3 is this week. Uh, I don't know if there's anything that really pertains to us unless they announce a new indie game program. Uh, I know Microsoft is still like rolling out their new indie game. Anybody can publish program, so maybe they'll give some more information about that, or maybe we'll hear from Sony and uh, Nintendo about indie game uh, programs from them. Uh, so yeah, Joe, you had that article which I've brought up here, and I didn't get to it earlier, but uh, double square. Okay, you got greenlit on Steam, which we mentioned Kifu's did, and then you have uh, your Momocon 2017. Oh, I'm not sharing the screen. <laughs> Share screen. There you are. And yeah, so Momocon 2017 budget breakdown. So you did a great job of documenting like every penny that went into the expenses uh, for your booth. Well, because I need it for tax write-offs later. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good idea. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I mean, the the biggest expense up front was, was the booth itself, which through Momocon was $450 for a 10 by 10 in their indie area. Which is a, it's a decent price for that yeah. level of attendance. It's uh, but you do get good. four days, right? So it's about a hundred, a little bit more than a hundred per day. Yeah, and the the dedicated space is nice, and they had our own security for that area. Uh, they took care of us really well. The, the the guys, as far as being able to get everything set up and get your power turned on, and your, just any issues um, throughout, they were. They were around. It was good. So you don't have to worry about people walking away with your tablets and TVs and things like that. With the yeah. And, or try to have to like take it all with you and bring it back every day, which would be not ideal unless you're like staying right there. Yeah. Which I was not. I was staying with a friend in Chambly, so I had like a 45-minute transit to and from each morning and evening. Yeah. Yeah, but that saved on money for a hotel and everything. So, right, which would be another big cost. Uh, 
if you do have to get a hotel, it's always better to try to room share if you don't mind having to cram four or five people in a hotel room can save on cost a lot there. Yeah, I know like downtown Atlanta getting a hotel, I mean, that can be like over a hundred bucks a night. So it definitely adds up. But And I drove there, so no plane ticket. That definitely or saves as well. Shipping. Yeah, so I was able to take everything that I needed for the show in my car. So I didn't have to try to arrange to have stuff delivered there or figure out how to get it back home afterward, which can cost a bunch of money too. They do have a FedEx ship center in the building there. Mm-hmm. And the the convention center itself has like partnered freight carriers and stuff so you could ship a pallet of stuff in and out of there for a couple hundred dollars but yeah it's a couple hundred more dollars <laughs> yeah uh adds up yeah it looked like your promo uh price for your promo materials wasn't too bad i know some of the things like the printed signs those can like be pretty costly like a couple hundred bucks and and just things like that can really add up and the giveaways as well, which I, I think I mentioned on podcast before is like, you can get like a lot of, uh, like a stack of 500 business cards for like 20 bucks and get magnets at a reasonable price. But once you start getting into pins, like a dollar per pin, and then if they force you to buy 500 up front, that's a pretty considerable investment <laughs> just in giveaways. Yeah, the, the website I use for the, the buttons is called like 24-7 wristbands. They had a pretty good price. I did the 500 square buttons, but I want to say it was less than $200 for the buttons. That's not too bad. And I still have a majority of them. I only gave away maybe 125 150 there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the, the business card-sized handouts were good, too, because you can print a lot more business cards than you can like full three by five or eight by six handout cards yeah here's uh this may turn out backwards on the youtube stream but here's your uh handout here so you got all your games i like that how you can just like pick it up and see everything that you've developed and you got your uh company name then you got the qr code with your website on the back so that's really well done yeah, that was one of the big ones. Yeah, then you got the little small one. Yeah, then you have your business card right yeah. here. It kind of looks the same with the QR code on the back. And then you got the little small one, which people can just put in the pocket right here. That one's a sticker. Uh, yeah, that was a sticker? One. I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. Cool. Which stickers are super cheap. Yeah. Uh, there's a couple websites. I think I got like 2,000 stickers for 30 bucks. Stickers are good because people can take them and they put them on their laptop or they can put them on the laptop cover. So then whenever they're out working on the laptop, then that's free advertising for you. <laughs> okay, so I was going to mention Steam Direct, which we talked about Greenlight a little bit already, but uh, they're moving t- uh, away from Greenlight. Greenlight is now shut down. And I know they greenlit a lot of games, including Kufu's Delivery Service and my One Gunman game. Uh, But the new system, if I can bring it up here, is going to be pay per game. I think it's $100 per game, if I can get this to show right here. Uh, So it seems like it's going to be a little bit better system. Uh, You can only, I cannot get this to pull up right here. Here we go. (laughs) 
So this is the Gama Sutra article. So you can check this out if you want to. People were speculating how much it was going to be. Some were saying up to $5,000 to be able to submit a game on Steam. And I think this is going to a per game uh, system. So that's going to keep a lot of the people who are submitting multiple games like me to Greenlight from submitting so much. So hopefully it'll weed out some of the uh, not as great games off of Steam. I was going to mention, I uh, forgot to do it earlier, but I did have a game that I developed. Uh, it's called Lexip. I created a game jam called the Pico 8 Jam, which, uh, let's see here, Pico 8. Pico 8 is a little, it's kind of like a little 8-bit uh, console uh, that you can use to create sprite-based games. It's pretty neat. Then you can save your games out to PNG file. Uh, so it's really easy to distribute your games. You can also make web builds of your games using this Pico 8 uh, system. It does cost $14.99, but they do have a, a bundle where you can get Pico 8 and this new 3D uh, voxel-based editing program for 20 bucks. So that's what I got. So I developed a little game called Lexip, which is pixel spelled backwards. And it's pretty simple. Let's see if I can just run this. You play this little guy. He walks around, and you try to avoid the little alien guys. You got three hearts, and once all your life is gone, then you die. So the objective is to get to the little exit area right there that's... Uh, highlighted up there then if you die you just go splat and restart so that's basically what i've been doing uh i did release my tty gfx adventure game on the microsoft store uh so you can check that out and also did some touch-ups to my delivery kit game so i'm gonna close that what else is on the agenda? Ludum Dare 39. So they actually moved it up uh, to July. Not sure. I think the organizer just thought that was a better time uh, since there's a lot going on in August. Uh, like he's saying PAX and Evo and things like that. So a little bit earlier, I don't know if we'll do a, a get-together or not. We'll probably talk about that uh, as this date approaches. So uh, be aware that that's now at the end of July. Hopefully this one will go a little bit more smoothly. I know the last Lumidari was a little bit bumpy because they're rolling out the new site and everything. Uh, and also I believe GM48 is also coming up as well. Uh, Joe, is that going to be in July? Yeah, it's a it's a couple of weeks ahead of Ludum Dari, so it's um, let's say July fifteenth. Oh, okay. So at least we'll have a little bit of a break between GM forty eight and Ludum Dari this time, but it won't be back. To yeah, back. they're they're two weeks apart. Yeah, yeah, that was tough there. Okay, that's everything that I had on the agenda. So I'm gonna turn it over to Dylan Wolf so he can uh, uh, give us uh, some information about RPG Maker. Uh, real quick, would y'all talk about your experience with Lundari in the past? Uh, just for sure. uh, me, I've never done a game jam other than like a little, little one-hour game jam. And I want to know kind of like what the process is and y'all's experience. Sure. I guess I'll go, go first. So I've been doing Ludum Dari since uh, 2013. I think I've done 12 or 13 of them now. You can see all my games 
on the Ludum Dari website. Now, there's two different uh, uh, versions of Ludum Dari. There's the jam, and then there's the compo. Uh, so all my stuff is on the old site, ludumdari.com. Let me make sure I screen share. Share screen. And author contact graph. So it's just a way to increase your skills. There's no prizes for Ludum Dare. It's create a game in 40, 40, 48 hours. As I started mentioning earlier, uh, the 48-hour game jam uh, it starts on Friday night and runs until Sunday evening. And you have to create everything from scratch. you got to create all the assets all the audio, all the graphics, everything yourself. But then there's a more relaxed jam version of Ludum Dari, which is 72 hours. And in the jam version, you can work with a team, you can use pre-existing assets and things like that. So after the game development period is ended, you submit your game. Uh, they don't host your game on the Ludum Dari website. Uh, you have to host that on your own, but there are a lot of great sites such as Itch.io and Game Jolt uh, where you can host your games. And after you submit your game, then over the next two or three weeks, you'll be judging by other people who have submitted games. So they'll check out your game and give you ratings on a, a number of different categories such as audio, graphics, uh, gameplay, fun, mood, things like that. So then you'll get an overall rating after the judging period is ended. So yeah, again, there's no uh, prizes or anything, but it's just a good way to force yourself to maybe learn something new, to develop something. And it's a good way to show off your work to other people. Cause like I said, during that rating process, the more ratings you give to other people, the higher your game will show up in the, uh, game list to be rated. So it's a good way to get your stuff out there, uh, develop something in a weekend and get people to see what you've developed. But uh, they used to have these mini LDs, which they would do those monthly, which had a little bit more relaxed rules. So I did quite a few of those as well. Uh, Joe, did you want to talk about uh, your experience with uh, Ludum Dory? Uh, sure. I've done, I think, four of them now. And then the GM48, which is a game maker specific jam that, kind of follows the same rules and they happen in like interchangeably with Ludum Dari. But uh I use Game Maker pretty much uh only. I have, I've dabbled a little bit with Unity, but I I prefer Game Maker, so that's what I've got the most time in. Uh I like the jams, especially Ludum Dari, because you can really kind of force yourself to put together some kind of prototype over the weekend, even if it's not um, like where your vision for the game might have started, like whatever comes out of it, it kind of can go from there and decide whether it's worth spending a month or two on afterward. Um, but yeah, I usually start with a, a mechanic and then all my games start out with, with shapes like little gray, green, blue triangles and lines and whatnot and, and see if I can get what I like is the idea down. And then if it works well, I'll try to go back through and, and add art and go from there, yeah. which I don't 
I'm not a good art person, so my stuff still isn't really that great, even after I <laughs> have touched it up. Yeah, I didn't mention earlier, like leading up to the start of the game jam, there's different rounds of voting. And I think both GM48 and Ludum Dare do this just in slightly different ways, but there is voting on a number of themes. And then uh, right before the game jam starts, they announce the theme, which you're supposed to develop your game uh, according to that theme. But like Joe mentioned earlier, I do this too. I kind of pick a like a game genre type or mechanic and kind of fit my the theme into that mechanic. Or you could just develop something totally different uh, for the theme. But that is one of the categories that you're graded on is... Uh, whether you had ad- adhered to that theme uh, for your game. Uh, yeah, I don't. I, I haven't put a lot of stock in the the rating yet. The last one, I didn't even get rated. I don't think. Which you have to have so many, like twenty people, judge your game to be able to see what you scored in. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, I usually don't even look at my my ratings. I have a couple of times. Like, okay, whatever. <laughs> I'm just happy I developed something. Yeah. Uh, Dylan, did you want to talk a little bit about your experience with Game Jams and Ludum Dari? Um, yeah, I think the, uh, the reason I like them is I can basically uh, go in and um, a lot of times what I'll do is say, okay, I want to focus on the presentation. I want to f- focus on getting like a full game. Uh, sometimes I'll go in and say, you know, I want to, f- you know, I want to try to make a puzzle game this time or something like that. So I get to experiment with something that if it doesn't go well, I'll just end up throwing away, um, which is fine. Like I'm, it lets me experiment without worrying about it. And if it does go well, like pretty much all the games I've released on Google Play are games that have come out of a game jam. So um, kind of gives gives me something that I can chew on. Um, I'll usually watch the themes early on to see what some of the possibilities are, start kind of thinking about them. Um, when uh, a theme is announced on uh, Friday, you know, I'll usually come back from whatever meetup we're doing start prototyping Saturday is where I really fill in like the meat of the game and the art and then Sundays levels, sound music, whatever, like finishing touches I maybe have time to add. So, you know, it's and, and like everyone else, like I'm not, you know, a pro. So a lot of that stuff is just, yeah, whatever I can throw together, you know, it's sloppy. It's, it's not great, but it's uh I, I did start out kind of watching the the ratings with some interest just to see like okay am i actually getting better and then by this point it's just like i don't want to i'll just be disappointed <laughs> you know like um and but you know it doesn't matter it's like do it for yourself it's kind of the way i look at it yeah the other thing that i didn't mention earlier is that some people uh actually do well i do live streams of my development Uh, a lot of people write post-mortems which are helpful so like after you finish the game jam you write up what went right what went wrong what you could have done better 
what you can do to improve and things like that. And those are helpful for other people, beginners, like, and everybody in general, just to see what approaches people took for developing games. And also some people do time-lapse videos. So you can take that full development over 48 hours and scrunch it down into five minutes and or so and see like the process of that game being created. Okay, uh, so I'm going to turn it over to Dylan Wolf. He's going to talk to us about uh, RPG Maker. Hi, no, did you, Jake, did you have any other questions? Or? No, I just said thank you. <laughs> okay. All right, so let's jump over to screen sharing here. Okay. So, all right. So everyone can see my uh, slides? Yes, looking good. I can. Okay. Um, all right. So this is a, a talk I've given a time or two before at, at different conventions. Um, and what I'm going to be doing is focusing our, on RPG Maker VX Ace, which is when I got in a humble bundle, I think a year or two ago. Um, a lot of this will also apply to the newest, which is RPG Maker MV. But instead of Ruby, that uses JavaScript, and it's structured a little differently. But as I understand it, a lot of um, a lot of the uh, the concepts are probably similar. Um, so this is a this is non intro to RPG Maker talk. This is an intro to Advanced RPG Maker. I'm kind of assuming that um, you have some knowledge of RPG Maker going into this. So. I mean, I can I can stop if anyone has questions. Um, so what we'll be talking about is what you can do with Ruby scripting in RPG Maker. Um, we'll talk about uh, finding what you need in RPG Maker's pre-existing code because the really intimidating thing is there is a ton of code out there. Um, like your default project starts uh, essentially pretty much all the menus you see in game are in that default project code. Um, you know, the battle system, things like that. So there's a lot of code out there that you have to kind of uh, pick through. And then we'll go through a really simple example of uh, effects created by scripting. Um, everything I'm talking about in this talk um, kind of comes from a series of posts I wrote on my website about, um, again, oddly enough, about uh, using RPG Maker in a let them dare. Like uh, I did a, uh, a jam with a friend of mine and, you know, he was familiar with RPG Maker and I said, okay, you know, part of what I want to do in this uh, jam is um, learn how to use RPG Maker scripting. So what we're talking about here is, and someone feel free to say something if, if you can't really see. Um, yeah. So what we're talking about here is you go to tools, script editor, and then you've got this, you know, and it's just a bunch of Ruby script and it is extremely intimidating, even probably for most of us who've been programming a while. Like even if we're kind of familiar with, you know, Python or Ruby or something like that, because there's just, there's so much here. <laughs> um, 
So before we dig into it, let's, you know, the big question is why would you want to use events? Uh, or, or why would you want to use Ruby code or you know JavaScript code and MV? Um, because RPG Maker has a perfectly good event system where you can come in here and you know script out you know things. It's got loops. It's got if thens. It's got you know a lot of you know a lot of control. Um, and there are really a couple of, a couple of different reasons. One is customizing the user interface. Anything you want to do that changes a window or um, changes how a process works, you're probably going to have to go into Ruby code. Like it's probably not something that's going to show up in the database. Um, you also, through Ruby, have a lot more access to certain types of data about what's going on in the game. So, for example. Um, we wanted to, uh, when we were doing the game jam, we wanted to create an enemy that would, um, if you cast a shield spell, would use a shield break so that you had to use a certain uh, strategy against him. And it's not really easy through events to figure out if a party member has a particular status effect. Um, but you can get that pretty easily in Ruby. Uh, and finally, um, you might go into Ruby and write code that you could just as easily write in events, but especially if you're familiar with writing code, it makes it easy to express certain, you know, complex logic and make it reusable. So for example, uh, our game jam game was essentially a series of would unfold over a series of days where, you know, you'd go out and fight a monster and you come back and you'd sleep and then, you know, you go back out and um, you know, instead of just writing this big long set of if then statements, it was easier just to create a, a function that we could call in code and then pass in a variable. That's a lot like when I'm doing unity and uh, I use playmaker for some things It makes some things really easy, yeah. but if you need to dig down and do something really specific, then it's easier just to do that in a C sharp script. Yeah. And of course, like, this is probably the same for, for like, uh, at least Levi and me, probably Joe, like, we're doing programming as our day job. That's, that's how I think, like, you know, um, so I, I'm, I'm almost biased towards if I can write code against it, it's a little bit better. Yeah, it's also similar to Game Maker, where Game Maker, you have like the default. It looks very similar where you have the yeah. events and you can like do it graphically. But then if you really need to do something like fine grained and everything, then they have like the code editor where you can call out yeah. and do your own code. Yeah. I think, Joe, like you work entirely in code and or, or, uh, in Game Maker, don't you? Yeah, I, I've even moved away from some of the events out of there and, and just use the step event and do things in code there. The the yeah. triggers. Like uh because some of the ways Game Maker handles those triggers, especially collision, are not great. Like it'll wait till things are overlapping and then declare that they have collided instead yeah. of like preemptively doing things before things collide. Or as they collide. Yeah, you don't want to get stuck in a wall. It's like, oh, your guy's in the wall, and <laughs> now he's collided. You kind of need to know one yeah. frame before if he's going to collide, then then push him up to the side. 
And that's that's the sort of thing I imagine would happen in RPG Maker, where if you're someone who uses it a lot, as you get more comfortable with scripting, you might use that more just to make it, um, to get a little bit more uh, control and to make it a little more reusable. Um, you know, and even even if even if not, like even if you're just going out and um, copying and pasting scripts, because there are, there are entire scripting systems that you can download and stick in your game, and then put like special codes and notes on different objects that will have certain effects. Even if you're doing that, it kind of helps to be able to understand what's going on under the hood. So. All that said, what's the downside of, of working with with scripting? You know, what's what's the uh, like if if it's so powerful, why would you ever use events then? Um, number one is RPG Maker VXACE is not a developer tool. So you can see when I brought up the script window here. I mean, I've got syntax highlighting, but that's it. Like if I start typing something, I'm not going to get IntelliSense. Um, I'm not going to get debugging. I can't like pause the game and say, or, or you know, at a particular point and say, okay, what's happening here? I'm not going to get a series of errors or warnings. Um, if I do, like if I write bad Ruby syntax, I'm probably not even going to know until I start the game. Um, to be fair, this is different in if you're using RPG Maker MV. MV uses JavaScript, um, loose JavaScript files, not like a bunch of scripts packed into a binary file. So you can actually use your code editor of choice if you want. Um, another downside is it's not well documented, especially how to get at game data. I found when I was working, I would end up um, going in and like printing stuff to the, you know, throwing alert messages or something like that, just to see what was like, what a particular value was at a particular time. Um, and, and the biggest issue is if you make a mistake, you will just like the game will just crash. Like it's not even like unity where the, um, the the script just gets disabled and and it moves along like you'll just get a crash and if you're not if you're not used to working with uh programming languages and stack traces and stuff like that it's a little intimidating um and even, or even if you are um because of that last bullet point i would also say if you're doing scripting you need to be backing up your project periodically because the the thing you don't want to do is get into a state where your your game is just unplayable, um, which is entirely possible to do. Um, okay, so I, I've kind of talked about like we've got event the event system and we've got you know Ruby you know the scripting system. And, um, you know, why you might use one over the other. In the end, what you're going to have to do is use both. You're kind of working in both worlds. And you're probably preferring, um, you know, they're, they're completely separate worlds, but there are ways they can talk to each other. Um, so 
this diagram is essentially kind of my mental model for uh, working with uh, Ruby code and RPG Maker. So anything that's in your database, like switches, variables, actors, troops, you know, status effects, skills, whatever, those are all accessible in Ruby code. So especially with switches and variables, you know, I can set something in an event and then I can go down and, you know, in my Ruby code and test whether that switch or that variable is set. Um, so that's one way I can kind of pass information back and forth. Um, I can also um, put, um, actually, let me, let me bring this up. This, so I can also go into my events and I can say, um, you know, I want to set a variable uh, to a script value or in, uh, I can do a conditional branch and have it return a script value. And essentially what I can do is go out, oh, let me get back to slides. I can go out to Ruby, have it execute some code and send my event back some data. Um, I can also go into event an event and put a script action in and just execute some arbitrary block of Ruby code. So essentially that's how, you know, if, if I'm writing my own Ruby code um, and not just modifying what's already there, that's how I'm gonna call out to it. Um, the big thing in Ruby is UI elements and like I said, that that kind of encapsulates things like processes and you know your battle your your screen transitions all that stuff is happening in ruby code and if you want to change how that works you're going to have to dig down into ruby um the trick or one of the tricks i ran into when we were doing the game jam is um you'll notice up here everything in your rpg maker database is saved. When you create a save file, you know, that's all there. Your switches, your variables, the current state of your characters, things like that. If you create variables in your Ruby code, that is not saved. That will be completely reset if your uh, player um, starts a new game or, or closes and reopens your game. So what you need to think about is, um, you know, if you're if you're doing something um, in Ruby where you're keeping track of some sort of state, you probably want to save that to a switch or a variable um, if, if you want it to, to be saved or be loaded when, when the player loads a game. Um, I think there are some ways to actually change how save files are written that might modify that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, that's pretty cool. So any variable that you've created in RPG Maker itself outside of the scripting code, it automatically saves it for you. Yes. Well, um, what we'll see, and let me see if I can find, I can't think of an easy way to get into it. I, I can I can dig into another project. Maybe? No. I don't know an easy way to show you that, but yeah, there's a, yeah, there's a global variable mm -hmm. for 
switches and, and RPG maker variables yeah. that you can get at. Yeah, that sounds really cool. I mean, that's one thing that Unity and Game Maker, as far as I'm aware, doesn't have is like if you're going to save your game, then you you got to write the file out yourself. So. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, how that can save a lot of time. It's like okay, I just create all my uh, attributes and objects and everything, and it automatically saves it for you. Yeah, I'm trying to think. I think there's actually a save, like a save game, save game without rescue, delete save file. Um, oh, okay. You know the 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 save game process is actually happening in um, in Ruby. Like, in fact. You know, file open, make file name, your your save index, and then we're writing. You know, we're marshaling the save header, the save contents. Um, so, if you really wanted to dig into that, you you could kind of figure out what it's doing. Very cool. Um, let's see, um, it's okay. We've we've kind of talked about what you need to know um, before you really get into it. Um, I would look at a couple different things. Um, one, you probably, like I said, you probably want to make regular backups. You should probably think about using source control. Um, there's a blog post on my site about that because um, there's some tricky things in VX Ace uh, that have to do with Steam Cloud. Um, VX Ace is not really nice doesn't necessarily play nice for with source control because everything is saved as a binary file so there's no merging um, or that sort of thing um, MV should be a little bit better about that um, and then oh. yeah I was just gonna say source control really helped me last night uh, I was working on one of my games and I was like uh, trying to clean some code up. It's like, oh, here's this F FSM thing on a prefab. I don't need it. Just deleted it. And it's like, uh-oh, my game doesn't run anymore. So I was able to go yeah. into... Uh, so I use Source Tree by Atlassian and it integrates really well with Bitbucket. Uh, so I was just able to go in there and it's like, oh, revert that prefab. And we're back in business. If I didn't have source control, I would have spent an hour or so trying to recreate all that. Yeah, and that's you know exactly what you want to prevent here is oh crap I deleted this thing that causes my game to break. Let's go back. Um, I also find it helpful to install Ruby. So um, if the, Ruby has something called IRB, which is an interactive prompt where you can just go in and type code. And since I'm not really familiar with Ruby, it's helpful for me to go in and say, okay, I want to write this. Let me see how I actually write this and kind of um, you know, test it out before I actually put it in RPG Maker. Um, it's also kind of helpful to bring up RPG Maker help. Uh, if you go into script editor and click help, there's actually some documentation here. It's not exactly easy to follow but um, know that you can get a little more information and then finally um, 
especially if you don't do a lot of programming, it's it's probably helpful to go through a basic Ruby tutorial just to get um, to kind of cement some of the concepts like classes, properties, methods, things like that. Because if you really get into uh, RPG Maker scripting, you're going to have to deal with things like that. So, all right. Um, like I said, one of the most intimidating things about RPG Maker scripting is it's got a whole bunch of different classes. You know, like you can see this, this list here is just all the different classes it provides. Um, thankfully, it's, it's pretty well, they're, they're pretty well grouped and named in a way that you can kind of figure out where different things are. So, for example, um, in modules, we've got vocab, we've got some things in data manager um, that give us some global variables. Um, we've got sound, cache, scene manager, battle manager, data manager, that kind of define ways of uh, interacting with major game systems or interacting with assets and files. Typically, you're not going to mess with those classes. Those classes are going to be there if you want to um, trigger something uh, in your game. But you, for, for most purposes, you can pretty much avoid them. Um, there's a section on game objects. And game objects are things like... Um, you know, character stats, um, message window, or game message. Yeah, uh, you know, like the process of opening a, a message window. Um, essentially, uh, any sort of game mechanics is going to live there, and any sort of uh, reusable commands or visual elements uh, are going to, you know, uh, processes for visual elements are going to live there. Uh, there's a section for sprites, which uh, just determines how uh, sprites are going to be displayed on screen. And to be honest, I've never messed with this very much, so I don't know exactly what's there, but it seems to be more graphical oriented. Um, windows defines things like um, menus, windows, things like that. Um, where again, if, if you want to change uh, the UI, this is probably where you're going to go. Um, and then scenes are essentially collections of windows and other elements that fit together. So for example, um, scene map is going to be, you know, what controls, you know, moving around on the map or things like that. Scene uh, save is going to be, um, you know, the save screen, you know, things like that. Um, and I kind of alluded to this before, but you'll notice everything is kind of nice, like has this kind of nice clean naming scheme. So, um, you know, and what you'll see is it'll be like type of object underscore purpose of object. So, you can look at a class called game underscore actor and you can know that that's the game object because it's got game in it. So mechanics, sprites, that sort of thing that represents an actor, you know, what RPG maker calls a character in the party. Um, 
if you dig down into it, you can see that Game Actor extends a class called Game Battler. And Game Battler is, again, the game object that represents an actor involved in combat, or a battler. You know, um, Game Party is the game object that represents the uh, party, which, it's, which then contains individual actors. Um, window Battle Status is the window that shows the party's status in battle. So you can kind of skim through that list of classes and have a vague idea of what everything does. And so um, we'll see in a second, you know, that can kind of help you know where to look if you know what you want to do. So, you know, again, like you don't have to be an expert with what RPG Maker is doing. But you can ask yourself a couple of questions when you go to um, make uh, kind of tweak some of the default functionality. You know, what, where is the function effect or effect that I want to modify locating? You know, that's going to tell you where to start. If it's on the battle screen, then you might look at scene battle or the specific window that, that has, um, um, that contains it. Um, then once you find that, you might go, okay, what other code is called by this code? You know, if I want to change something on the battle screen, um, you know, and I go into a window, it might trigger some things happening in battle manager. It might trigger some things happening in game actor or game battler or something like that. Um, and so if you change something one place, you might actually have to change multiple sections to make it work. And, and we'll see that in a second. And you can also look at it the other way and say, what other code depends on this code? So, you know, um, don't remove something that uh, another function references. Don't change behavior that some other function expects to be there or expects to happen before it gets called. So you're kind of... You know, you, you know, you pick out whatever function or effect you're dealing with and then imagine going down the chain and then up the chain and, and you know, somewhere along there is, is what you're looking for. So, okay. So we're going to get to a demo here. And the example, this is actually an example that comes from the, the Let Them Dare jam that we did where we built a game where the character... Uh, we wanted to uh, control the character's level progression. We wanted to give characters new skills as they defeated certain enemies or as they failed so many times. Um, and so because RPG Maker kind of gives you a fully functioning game, it had a lot of things that we didn't need. So for example... You know, I can bring up this game and I can bring up the menu. Um, we didn't need equipment. We didn't need uh, status. We didn't need formation. Um, but the example I want to look at here is we didn't need this gold window. We weren't going to be given the, giving the character any gold. There were no shops. It was just not useful. And um, if you're if you're building an RPG Maker game. Um, you know, like if you think of games like To the Moon that that aren't implementing a full RPG, it kind of helps the player to get into the game if you pull out those pieces that um, 
that you don't need. You know, it's less friction. It's it's less confusion. Um, it doesn't make it feel like you're just hacking this on to, to an existing game project. So let's look at, look at how we would hide that gold window. So we'll go into the script editor and, you know, there, there are a couple of, um, there are a couple of good candidates here. So we could look at, obviously window gold is this window displays the party's gold. This might actually be what we're looking for. Um, we can also, we, we can also look and say, well, it shows up on, um, the window, the, oh yeah, scene menu. It shows up on scene menu. You know, maybe we want to look there. Um, just as an example, let's, let's just say we, we just made the simplest assumption possible and said, okay, window gold defines how this window shows up. Let's just delete it. Let's just make window gold go away. So we're going to play test. We're going to save our changes. We're going to come in here. No. And we get a <laughs> Yes. So again, this is one of those things that's really scary. Um, if you don't have a lot of experience with it, but if you kind of just break it down piece by piece, you see what's going on. So what we can see is script window message. So we know what class it's happening in. Line 90, we, we can see where it happened. Something called a name error occurred. And that name error is I was trying to uh, access something called window gold and it doesn't know what it, I'm talking about because it no longer exists. So we'll let that crash. We'll go in and say, um, well, actually, you'll notice here that uh, the script editor took me right to window message because it knew where I got that crash, which is neat. Um, and so what we'll see here is, um, I'll do a magnifier just to see, just so you guys can see it better. Um, so what we're doing here is, we're creating a bunch of windows that we're going to use for like the little message window that pops up and we're creating a new instance of window gold. And then we're setting its uh, position and making sure it's closed. So what we're going to do is we're just going to delete all that. So we'll try again. Okay, and now we got a completely different error message. It's still in window message. No method error occurred. Method update for null class. That's a little more confusing, but we're looking at, at line 152. So, okay, so we jump in here at line 152. We're calling the update method on gold window, but um, you know, remember what we did before was say, just don't even create gold window. So what's happening now is it's saying, I don't know what you're, you're telling me to do something with gold window. I don't know what that is. So what we really need to do here is just delete this line 
and delete anything else that would possibly reference Gold Window. So, for example, here, if you've got a character code, there's a character code that you can put into a message that would open the gold window. And we'll just take that out so that it doesn't do, you know, anything there. Now we've gotten all our references out of window message. And we should actually start up now. That's working. So let's... Oh no. If we try to open a, a menu, we'll see the same thing happens. So again, window gold is not accessible. So okay, scene menu. Um, and here we've kind of got the same sort of situation. In fact, um, and remember scene menu is essentially the game menu scene. It's, it's the class that handles all of those different interactions. And what we can see here is, you know, we're, we're setting up like the player status window. We've got a message or nah, we've got a method to set up the command window that gives us like item, skill, equip, status, formation. Um, actually come in here and delete some of that. Um, but we just want to get rid of this whole method here that creates the gold window. And as we learned earlier, we also want to um, want to delete anything that references that. So now um, we've pulled out all the references to gold window, and we should we start it up. And it's gone. Um, actually, weirdly, formation and skills are still there. I feel like every time I do this talk, I have I, I end up doing that where I'm like, I'm just going to pull out this one. Little, I'm going to make this one little change. It'll be fine. Yeah. I'm not exactly sure why it's doing that. That feels like... Yeah, there's so many little things embedded in there. and <laughs> Yeah. Okay, I'm not going to dig into that anymore. But um, but we got rid of the gold menu. Yeah, and, and that's that's essentially my, my simple demo here is, you know, how, like, I, I'm obviously, you know, I've done this before, this <laughs> this demo before, but like, let's say I don't know anything about a function and I want to get into it. This is how I might kind of think through what I'm doing. I do like how they have all the, all the code and all the API and everything like right there in the script editor. So you just have one place to go to where you can start changing stuff. Yeah. And, and this actually does kind of give you a good um, idea that, um, if I wanted to add something to one of these menus, um, oh, actually, I know why. Because um, this is, see, what's happening here is we're attaching methods that handle different commands that already exist. Okay. So I can come in here to window menu command. 
Say, let's get rid of skill. Let's get rid of formation. And actually, I probably need to do something else there. Yeah, anything that... Okay, so, you know, and I could basically do the same thing if I wanted to add menu items. Like, if I wanted to add some little mini game, um, you know, if I wanted to add a quest system, this would essentially be where I, I would do it. Um, so that's kind of the basic talk. Um, does anyone have anything they want to ask about, test out, see if we can find where it is? I just think that's very cool. I mean, they give you like a fully working game and everything, but I couldn't understand if you need to make, it's like, oh, I don't need this thing or that thing. Then you got to dig in there and like get rid of those certain parts. But it looks like it's very like extensible and everything. Oh yeah. And yeah, like you said, it's a, it's a fully functioning game. And, you know, especially if you're new to it, it's like, ah, well, you know, I'm, you know, there are just certain things I can't, I can't make behave differently. And, you know, you actually can if you, if you get really into it. Yeah, I think that's very good for new game developers. I, mean, I know that initial hurdle of what, like actually getting something to build can be kind of steep sometimes. So it's good that you can, and that's the way I do a lot of my games. I just take some code and then figure out, twiddle it and tinker with it and then modify it to my needs. So I think it's definitely good for beginners and it gives them that re yeah. information that they have something that works. Yeah. And it's also a case where, you know, you can actually do a whole lot um, as far as, you know, building a, a story, you know, scripting, scripting different mechanics out with the event commands. Um, and you can actually do some crazy things in, in like the battle system um, you've got, you know, you've, you can, you can execute events at the beginning or at the, uh, end of every turn or at the beginning of battle. Um, you can set up a lot of that. And then when you're ready to go deeper, then you can bring up, uh, Ruby scripting and actually get into code and, and that sort of thing. Now, does this, is this the one that has like the character creator? Um, I think it does yeah there's a character generator yeah i think i played with this just a little bit just to see if i could create a character and export it for one of my other games but it seems like it's really i want a really nice character creator a lot of different hairstyles and attributes that you can change facial yeah features. i've never really messed with this to be honest but yeah i mean it it's good for you know you know, like I, I would not be able to draw this much stuff for a game. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> All right. Well, gonna hand it back over. Very cool. So yeah, I got to dig back into <clears throat> RPG Maker. So there's the new version that they got out now is RPG Maker MV or 
Yeah. And that's, and that's XV Ace. Okay. Yeah, or VX Ace. Yeah. Gotcha. Okay, very cool. <clears throat> yeah, I got to dig back into RPG Maker and make some stuff with it sometime. So that's basically all that we had for this week. Uh, going to go around and see if uh, anybody else has anything they want to share or anything to plug. Uh, Joe, did you have anything else you wanted to talk about? Uh, not just uh, if you're posting on the follow-up there. I guess I can add uh, on the Knoxville website to my bio that i've added a patreon or we have a list of anything like that with our web pages and stuff yeah we have that on the knoxville game design website and i don't know if that's something that i mentioned before let me go into screen sharing share screen and so <clears throat> we have the directory and I changed this up a little bit. So anybody that's ever like attended one of the meetings in person or online, we got a link to the website and Twitter and itch.io account. Uh, but then the old profile pages are down here. And these are the ones where you actually have to register and uh, fill in your personal information and things like that. So you can go on there and uh, see more details on okay. Facebook and uh, YouTube and things like that. So, I think we just have me, Joe, Dylan, Mike, and yeah, I think Jason is moving. I saw him post something. I think he's moving to North Carolina, so miss him from the group. Uh, then uh, Mike. So yeah, yeah, check out Joe's Patreon. I got a Patreon as well. See, Joe, you're Double Square LLC on mm -hmm. the web. And you're Double Square Joe on Twitter. Yep. Okay, awesome. Uh, Dylan, did you have anything else you wanted to show off? Nah, okay. I haven't really been doing a lot that I can... That I've been poking around with an old game in Unity, so... Yeah. <laughs> Not much to... Yeah, we really appreciate the RPG Maker talk. Yeah, hopefully we can start doing more talks like this and go into a little bit more depth on certain topics. Uh, yeah, so yeah, everyone check out DylanWolf.com. That's where you can find Dylan, all of his articles, links to his games, things like that. Uh, Dylan Wolf, on, he's pretty much Dylan Wolf everywhere. Dylan Wolf on Itch.io and also Dylan Wolf on Twitter. Oh, Jake, uh, did you have anything else you wanted to share with us? Nah, man, I'm mostly just here observing and asking one question, so I'm good. Okay, we really appreciate <laughs> you joining. Uh, come back anytime. Uh, did, do you have like a Twitter or a website where we can get in touch with you? Uh, don't do Twitter. I do have a website, uh, jakegillenwater.me. Okay, uh, Jake. I threw it up fast and it kind of sucks too oh, okay but. that's G G gillwater uh gillenwater g-i-l-l-e-n-w-a-t-e-r okay awesome we'll definitely check that out okay and everybody can find me at levidsmith.com i'm gotech grad g-a-t-c-h-g-r-a-d on itch.io and on uh, Twitter as well. And also, as I think as I mentioned earlier, we do have a Knox Game Design Twitter account now. 
so check that out. Let's see if I'm bringing that up. So Twitter, Mox Game Design. So basically, this is like retweets and things related to the game developer group. So if you just want to find out more about our group, you can also go to knoxgamedesign.org and uh, find out all about our latest events and things like that. So I guess that's it for this week. Uh, make sure to check us, check us out on YouTube. That's where you can find the video version of this podcast. Uh, we're also on iTunes. Check out iTunes. You can uh, subscribe to us on there and always get the latest uh, podcast uh, audio version of this uh, meetup. We're also on the Google Store, the Google whatever audio store, podcast store they have. And also if you get to the website, knoxgamedesign.org, you can either play the podcast through the player there or you can subscribe directly to the RSS feed there. So anyway, uh, appreciate everyone that's watching and listening. Uh, we'll be back in a month. Thanks, everyone.